are listening to The Addiction Files, where we discuss evidence-based treatment, clinical pearls and resources, while striving to destigmatize the treatment of addiction in our medical culture and save lives. We are The Addiction Doctors, Dr. Darlene Peterson and Paula Cook. Welcome! This is our first episode in a three-part series on alcohol use disorders. And tonight we are going to talk about identifying alcohol use disorders. And this is a really common problem, right, Paula? It is. We're going to talk about the prevalence of alcohol use disorders in the general population, some of the tools that you can use for identifying, explaining what the audit is and the craft. And so we'll talk about adults and adolescents with alcohol use disorders, defining what the standard drink is, what definitions of an alcohol use disorder, and we'll go from there. Sounds good. Uh, this represents, as far as substance use disorders on the spectrum, it's about 14% of Americans in the past year have an alcohol use disorder. And this is from the NASDA 2017 survey. What that translates into is about 7.3 7. million current alcohol users. Of those, 4.5 million are binge alcohol use disorders. And of those, you have 1.1 million are heavy alcohol users. Thinking, just think about those numbers. Those are, those are huge. And the medical consequences from that, when we think about liver failure, alcoholic hepatitis, and just the medical consequences, that's staggering, don't you think? It is. I mean, alcohol has now been listed as the third leading preventable cause of death in the US, which is pretty astounding when you think about how prevalent it is and how accessible it is and how much effort we kind of put into other chronic diseases or preventable diseases. Uh, and alcohol, I think, somewhat goes unnoticed. The definition of risky drinking for women is greater than three drinks per day or seven drinks per week. For men, greater than four drinks per day or 14 drinks per week. For adults older than the age of 65 or, or people taking certain medications, the standards for women will apply, meaning no more than three drinks per day or seven drinks per week. Right. I mean, these are guidelines just for um, risky, what makes up risky drinking or safe drinking. And of course, safe drinking versus risky drinking, that's all relative. I mean, it's all individualized because what may be quotation marks safe drinking for you may not be safe for me, right? And I think we need to yes. back up and also say, well, what is a standard drink? So in the US, a standard drink is, or one alcoholic equivalent contains about 14 grams of pure alcohol. And so when you look at typical drinks consumed, 14 grams of alcohol is found in 12 ounces of regular beer, which contains about 5 ounce, five percent alcohol, or a 5-ounce glass of wine, which is about 12% alcohol content, or a 1.5-ounce hard liquor or distilled spirit pour which though, considering that those are 40% alcohol. So that that's important to review with patients because what might be a typical drink for one person, you know, a four or five ounce pour of wine for someone else, when they have a glass of wine, they're talking about a Dixie cup of box wine, which could be 12 or 16 ounces. And so when I... You're, right. You're right. When you ask people, you know, how many drinks do you have or how many drinks do you typically have a week? And they say, oh, you know, three or four a night. It's important to quantify 
what they're drinking and how much they're drinking. And some places, uh, even if when you go out to drink, they may do heavy pours. They may do double pours for the shots, or they may do two ounce pours as opposed to 1.5 ounces. So these are the recommendations and the standards per the NIAAA, which is the National um, Institute on on alcohol abuse and alcoholism. And I think it's important to use those standards. And just like you said, Darlene, you know, the, the, the recommendation for safe drinking for people who do not otherwise have a medical condition for which you shouldn't have alcohol or pregnancy, or if you're operating machinery, or if you're on other CNS depressants, or if you have a substance use disorder, then it's, you know, no more than um, seven total drinks a week for women and 14 for men. And in a single day, um, it was no more than four a day for men and no more than three a day for women. So you have to review that because sometimes they may not exceed their weekly limit of seven a week, but they may have five in one night. And that actually constitutes risky drinking or binge drinking, actually. Um, or the opposite is true. They may not drink more than a couple of drinks a night, but they have two every night and it's and they're over 65 or they're a female and that they're Therefore, that's considered risky drinking. Doesn't necessarily mean they have an alcohol use disorder. You have to go through the DSM-5 and make that diagnosis. But according to the NIAAA, these limits suggest risky or dangerous drinking, especially for health reasons, not so much for social reasons, but for health reasons. And there's some talk about changing these limits. Have you heard about that? Yes, I have, just because of these medical consequences that they're seeing. Right, right. So, um, you know, th there might be different recommendations for different countries, but typically here, that's what we stick to. And who knows in the future, because alcohol consumption has been laced with some um, controversy, because for, you know, we were taught that maybe some alcohol is good for your health, maybe one glass of wine is good for um, HDL cholesterol, etc. And then maybe there's some backtracking now in terms of alcohol consumption, and they're finding that some alcohol consumption at all may be bad for your health, but then they found that people who drink have better mortality. So there seems to be conflicting data about alcohol consumption in general. It's a very interesting topic. But for the interest of this talk, we're basically just uh, reviewing how to identify risky drinking, binge drinking, and alcohol use disorder. Yes, and definitely when you identify that risky drinking, that's important to, that those patients are the ones you want to screen further. Yeah, I mean, it's common. There's so many patients I think we're missing, especially in a primary care setting, and even in the hospital post-surgery, those post-surgery deliriums. And sometimes it may be that they're not daily drinking, but it can be binge drinking. And you touched on that a little bit, but the definition of binge drinking was four plus drinks within two hours or heavier binge drinking is on five or more days within the past month is the, is the ASAM definition of that. And I think sometimes that one can be commonly missed, don't you think? Oh, absolutely. And um, yeah, binge drinking is a really serious public health problem, especially in college-aged adults. And it's very, very prevalent, like you said. According to the CDC, about one in six U.S. adults binge drinks four times a month. That's really frequently, you know. And um, especially, yeah. like I said, especially men, which more 
about twice as common for men to binge drink than women. Um, but we're seeing that uh, disparity in gender um, minimize as women start drinking more as well. But we see a lot of young men, especially between the ages of 18 and 34, who consume a large number of drinks in a small amount of time, four drinks or more in two hours for women or five drinks or more in, in two hours for men and uh, has serious risks associated with it. You know, intentional injuries, car crashes, uh, falls, burns, alcohol poisoning of, in and of itself is dangerous. Um, violence is a untoward consequence, unfortunately, of binge drinking. STIs are um, an another consequence of binge drinking, and then of course, unintended pregnancy. And then you do contribute to chronic diseases when you binge drink. I think a lot of people don't think that once in a while binge drinking has negative health effects, but it does, especially for people who are more vulnerable, who have underlying liver disease like NASH or autoimmune immune liver disease, those people who have high blood pressure or other heart problems. So it's, it's a big problem and um, it's something to definitely address. And that's why screening for alcohol use and alcohol intake is really important when you see your patients in an outpatient setting or an emergency department setting. And then of course, we see a lot of alcohol use disordered patients in the inpatient setting. But how do we differentiate binge drinking or risky drinking or just normal drinking that doesn't have any problems associated with it with alcohol use disorder? That is a great question. What is your favorite tools that you use? We have the audit, we have the audit C. And, and tell us about those a little bit, Paula. Well, the audit and the audit C, uh, the audit C is a uh, an abbreviated version of the audit. And it's a really handy um, screening tool that you can use in your practice to determine if patients are drinking more than they should. It basically asks three questions. How often did you have a drink containing alcohol in the past year? And they answer either never, monthly or less, two to four times a month, two to three times a week, or four or more times a week. And they get increasing points for each of those answers. The second question is, how many drinks did you have on a typical day when you were drinking in the past year? So for example, I could say to you, Darlene, would say last weekend on Friday night, how many drinks did you have? That was a typical Friday night. Well, I know you, so you would probably say none. Therefore, you would score zero, right? Right. Number, and then, you know, they get different points if they say none, one to two, three to four, five to six, seven to nine, or 10 or more. The third question for the audit C is how often did you have six or more drinks on one occasion in the past year? So obviously that question is trying to identify really heavy drinking and also binge drinking. And likewise, the points go from zero to four for each of the answers, never less than monthly, monthly, weekly, or daily. And so the audit C is scored on a scale of zero to 12. If someone scores zero, they're not drinking at all. Uh, and they're not having typical drinks and they're not having six or more drinks. They scale up to 12 being very severe. If they score four or more and they're a male, it's considered a positive screening test. If they score three or more and they're a female, then it's a positive test. So what does this indicate? This indicates that this patient may or likely has an alcohol use disorder and you need to go further in and uh, do a history or do the audit 
test, right, to get more information that then could give you information about whether they meet criteria for DSM-5, mild, moderate, or severe. Audit, whether it's the Audit C or the Audit, I mean, it stands for Alcohol Use Disorders Identification Test. And so the Audit is the longer version. It's public on the public domain, and it's an interviewed uh, screening tool that you can ask um, your patients. And it basically asks these same kinds of questions. How often do you have a drink obtaining alcohol? How many drinks do you have on a typical day? So the first three questions are the same as the audit C, but then it goes into more of the nitty gritty that you would uh, consider um, indicative of, a, of an addiction or an alcohol use disorder. For example, how often during the last year have you found that you are not able to stop drinking once you started? How often during the last year have you failed to do what was normally expected from you because of drinking? So they're asking about role failure, right? Role and obligation failure yes. and not being, so losing control. How often in the last year have you needed a first drink in the morning to get yourself going? That obviously is checking for withdrawal. How often during the last year have you had a feeling of guilt or remorse after drinking? And how often during the last year have you been unable to remember what happened the night before? So checking for blackout. The ninth question is, how have you or someone else been injured as a result of your drinking? So again, checking for consequences or for use in socially or physically hazardous situations. And then another question is, how um, has anyone been worried about your drinking or said anything about your drinking? So it... It goes more into the depths of of the of alcohol use disorder, and um, you screen it according to those ten questions. And if you um, have a positive test for men, then you might want to go forward and see if they meet criteria again for mild, moderate, or severe, and for women again, mild, moderate, or severe. And you can look into these the specific questions and see where people are scoring highly as well. I like the audit. It really helps you kind of just check off the DSM-5 criteria and pretty smoothly where you ask those questions in a non-judgmental manner. And you're getting, like you said, you're getting that role failure, plus you're meeting the criteria of the quantity and being able to determine that this person yeah, does have an alcohol use disorder and how it's impacting their life. Right. And I guess I should have said, if it, you know, it's a 10 question screening tool with um, scores of up to four points for each question. If someone scores eight or more, then they considered having harmful or hazardous drinking patterns. But if they score 13 or more for women, then it's it's likely to indicate an alcohol use disorder or 15 or more in men, the, the basics of the audit. And it doesn't take very long to give, really. I mean, you do you use this in your practice? We have... <laughs> I don't have this one embedded in our EMR. We have the audit C, but then we have the questions basically of the, uh, you know, basically, do you have those things kind of scattered throughout in our questionnaire? So it's not, it's not as formal. Yeah, it's, um, we, we use the audit, um, just, but that's because we work in a, in a specifically substance using population. And so we need to get a little bit more gritty with our patients. And it has fairly good sensitivity um, for men. The sensitivity is 97.5%. And for women, it's 100%, actually. Um, but the specificity is not as high. 
the benefit is that it does go into some of the questions that you would want to know in regards to making an alcohol use disorder diagnosis. Um, the limitations is that it doesn't account for other substances. But I mean, you could ask similar questions for other substances, or you could use another substance. Uh, substance use screening tool if you were asking someone about their substance use. But I think it's a good tool. It's been, you know, it's a validated tool and it's recommended as one of the tools in for SBIRT. So if you are using SBIRT as part of your primary care approach to substance to screening patients, or if you're in the emergency department and using SBIRT, the audit C or the audit can be helpful with identif- as part of the screening part of the SBIRT for S. Um, and then you can do a brief intervention and uh, referral to treatment. Sounds great. Right. And I mean, I guess two more things I just wanted to say. If someone screens positive on the Audit C or, excuse me, not the Audit C, well, both the Audit C and the Audit, and you, you really, you know, they're coming to you and saying, man, I'm just having trouble with my alcohol use. And they're being honest with you, you know, just remember that there are those criteria, the 11 criteria in the DSM-5 you can review, okay? And if they meet two to three of those, they have mild alcohol use disorder. If they meet four or five, they have moderate. If they have six or more, they have alcohol use disorder severe. And those criteria are, you know, drinking more than is intended or longer than intended, um, wanting to cut down or, or um, trying to stop drinking and being unable to do so, spending a lot of time drinking, or having uh, being sick and getting over um, having um, withdrawal um, craving is a is a, is one of the criteria of DSM five and patients will tell me I just I'm thinking all day about five o'clock I just can't get through the workday because I just keep thinking five o'clock I can start stop drinking right um, other criteria of the DSM five is um, uh, drinking is interfering with your roles either work family or social other social. Um, roles and uh, that people continue to drinking in spite of other consequences socially. So anyway, you can go through them, you can look them up, but they, they basically, you know, review hazardous drinking, lack of control and physical tolerance. Those are the three main categories. So go in and don't be afraid to diagnose people with alcohol use disorder if you're worried that they have it, because it, it, then you can provide them with adequate treatment. And we're going to talk about that. Adolescence, Paula, so the craft... That's our most common tool we use for that. That's pretty easy. Just doing my physicals with teens. You'll just briefly screen. I have the cutoff kind of 15 and younger. Are your friends, are your friends drinking or using alcohol or smoking? And 16 and old, are you using alcohol? Yeah, I think that's the recommendation to um, ask younger ch- kids if they have associates who are using or sipping alcohol or tasting alcohol, use those words. And then um, over 15 year olds, ask them the three question, ask them basically, have you had any alcohol in the last 12 months? And have you used anything else to get high or smoked any marijuana? And then the craft tool, I think, you know, this is a validated tool. So the craft tool has six questions based on the acronym C-R-A-F-F-T. These are questions you can ask your adolescent patients. Does not only apply to alcohol, right? Applies to other substances. The C stands for car. The question is, have you ever ridden in a car driven by someone, including yourself who was high or had been using alcohol or drugs? So they either answer yes or no to that. Uh, The R 
in craft is do you ever use alcohol or drugs to relax? So that's the R, relax. Feel better about yourself or fit in? And the answers are yes or no. So first one is car, second one is relax. Do you ever use alcohol or drugs to relax? The A is for alone. Do you ever use alcohol or drugs while by yourself or alone? Uh, and then one of the Fs is forget. Do you ever forget things you did while using alcohol or drugs? I guess this is testing blackouts or testing quantity and severity of use. The second F is do your family or friends ever tell you that you should cut down on your drinking? or drug use. I guess that's a kind of examining consequences, social consequences to your to kids' use. And then the last uh, part of the craft is T, and it is trouble. Have you ever gotten into trouble while you were using alcohol or drugs? If adolescents say yes to any of the questions, right, there might be a problem. If they answer more than two of the questions as yes, there's a potentially significant problem, which means that you need to do a full assessment and uh, probably refer the adolescent for treatment. So that's, and obviously have more discussion, right? Yeah, absolutely. Um, there's a there's a really good guide. Again, the NIAAA has a excellent pamphlet that you can look up. It's on the public domain and it's called Alcohol Screening and Brief Intervention for Youth, a Practitioner's Guide. It's, I think it might be a little bit dated at this point. It was published in 2011, but it hasn't been updated yet. So I think it's still a go-to and it's, you can print it and um, give copies of it to your patients and your patients' families, or you can order the pamphlet. They're free. You can also download the PDF. And um, it's really important to know how to screen and intervene for your youths who are drinking because one in three um, kids start drinking by the end of eighth grade and half of them report being drunk at some point, which is kind of crazy <laughs> when I think like eighth graders, that just seems so young. Just think of half, you know, one in three eighth graders have already had alcohol and half of those have already been drunk right? But when we go and we do our addiction histories on our patients, I mean, most of them report that they their first substance was either tobacco or alcohol. And those numbers fit, Paula, correct? I mean, it's usually around age 11 or 12 was their first substance. It's so true. No, it's true. It's scary, but it's true. Yeah. So, you know, we should be doing this at our well child checks and any child over nine, we should be doing an alcohol screening and brief intervention according to the NIAAA. So you ask either about friends drinking or patients drinking. And if they say, no, 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 none of my friends drink, I don't drink, then, you know, you reinforce their healthy choices. So you say, hey, you know, that's great. And you praise the choice and elicit and affirm reasons from the child, the adolescent, why staying alcohol-free is a good idea. And then you follow up with them again next year, right? Or every time you see the kid. Yes. If they do screen positive, then you're going to kind of go through those A's, right? You assess risk, you advise, you assist, and then you arrange follow-up. And it's really important that you do this because like Darlene said, like you said, the earlier patients and humans in general are exposed to substances, the more likely they will develop a substance use disorder when they're older. I mean, that's just addiction risk. That's This is not the direct toxicity and risk of a substance on their brain at a young age, right? Right. 
Right. So it's really important to intervene at a young age and to figure out, well, why, what's going on? Is it peer pressure? Is it anxiety? Is it something else that's driving it? And, um, and do they have vulnerabilities to a substance use disorder? How do we shut that down? The other resource, Darlene, um, much like the adolescents, the NIAAA has a pamphlet and a little tool for for adults who are drinking too much or how to um, assess and I don't know if you use this but I use this all the time it's I do yeah 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 it's called rethinking drinking and um, you can refer you can email it to your patients you can print it what do you how do you use it in your practice I don't know if the pamphlets are still available but I still have some of the old ones you can actually order them and then I still will print them and just give them to exactly. patients. Exactly. Just print them. Yeah, it's a great website. It's literally rethinkingdrinking.niaa. If you just put rethinking drinking, it will it'll pop up. I, I find that really helpful. Yeah. So if you if you if you do an expert on a patient and you have someone who's really ambivalent, I just give them that. And some patients will come back. They're maybe just not quite ready to for treatment and don't really want to talk to you about it yet. But that's such a great resource and tool to give to them. I'm really concerned about you or your liver enzymes are high and and they'll come back and maybe get some help. Yeah, no, I agree with you. I agree. I mean, I think a lot of people are surprised to hear what a standard drink is and what drinking recommendations are. They're like, are you kidding? And also some people are just more vulnerable to alcohol. And I think it's really important to have those conversations with your patients. I had a patient who wasn't drinking very much. In fact, she didn't meet this NIAAA criteria for risky drinking and she would have scored low on the audit. But she had a very strong family history of alcohol use disorder. And she was raised by a mother who was had was very ill with alcoholism. And she would tell me that, you know, anytime I drink alcohol, I just get this change in my brain and I really crave it. And I just have one drink and then I'll, I won't drink again for maybe a month or two. But when I do drink, it really seems to affect me. What do you think I should do? And it was really interesting to have that conversation with her about her risks and how she felt kind of emotionally about alcohol, considering her childhood, her upbringing, and her experience. And so the bottom line is not alcohol is not equal in all people. And it's actually not equal between men and women at all, right? Women are at far greater risk from the harms of alcohol than men. And women start to have alcohol-related problems sooner and at lower drinking levels than men do for lots of reasons. So I think we need to be careful and judicious when we counsel our female patients about alcohol use, letting them know that, you know, because we weigh less than men, we have more body fat than than men do, sadly. (laughs) We have less water, that that alcohol affects us differently. We also have less of the um, alcohol metabolizing enzymes than men do. And we seem to have more susceptible liver um, cells to alcohol injury. And so we get a telescoping effect, uh, women drink alcohol. And of course, with the risk of uh, pregnancy and uh, fetal fetal alcohol syndrome disorders, um, that's a whole nother spectrum of risk that we need to discuss with our patients. So we do need to talk to our elders because you cannot metabolize and drink alcohol at the age of 75 that you did at the age of 25. Females differently to males, adolescents and the developing brain, and then um, other people who just may have other vulnerabilities. That is excellent, Paula. I think that is so important that this is not a moral or an 
ethical. This is a medical condition with very serious consequences. And, and so that's why it's so important that we make sure we screen our patients. And I think it's really important to check ourselves. I, you know, the old adage, I think, still rings true that when they ask, do you have a drinking problem? And only if you are drinking more than your physician. And so sometimes <laughs> physicians do. I've never heard that. That's awesome. That's kind of funny. <laughs> like, but sometimes I think it's being missed. And I've, I've sometimes worked, we maybe have had colleagues that maybe aren't screening because, you know, their patients, oh, yeah, they're drinking every day, but it's not too much. I'm like, eh, you know, we maybe need to, we maybe need to rein that in a little bit. And we need to talk about that. We need to ask. You need to start the conversation and offering them treatment. Absolutely. Yeah. And that's what we will talk about on future episodes. So just to recap, this is serious medical consequences for our patients. So we need to screen. We have great screening tools out there. So you can start with the abbreviated audit C, which is just three questions. And then if they screen positive on that, then consider doing the 10 question audit. In your adolescence, use the CRAFT. All of these are available on the public domain and wonderful resources on NIAAA where you can download resources, guides for adolescents and your adults, great pamphlets that you can give to your patients. Make sure that we're screening our patients in our office settings, in the ER, and even in the hospital. We need to be screening. This is a very common disorder. Until next time. Hey, check us out at theaddictionfiles.com or email us at theaddictionfiles at gmail.com. Thank you so much to Ricky Valides for use of his song, Awake. Check him out at rickyvalides.com. purposes only. Hosts and guests are not responsible for any harm caused by information obtained from the source. As each person is unique, you're advised to seek the advice of your own healthcare professional to treat any medical conditions you may be having. Opinions expressed on the show are those of the addiction files and not of our respective employers.